Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, July 5th, 2020, and this is show number 791. Well, this is going to be a rather unusual No Silicast in terms of the format. We're going to start with a great review from Nuclear John, also known as Jonathan Scott, that I actually held over from last week. Then I've got a dumb question from Ron Hybe that's pretty fun in a nerdy kind of way. So far, that's pretty normal. But the last 45 minutes of the show will be a conversation between me and Tom Merritt of the Daily Tech News Show. It probably could have been a standalone chit-chat across the pond, but when we started recording, I didn't think we'd find that much meat on the bones of our topic. I thought it'd be like maybe 15, 20 minutes. Turned out to be 45 minutes long. Anyway, I explained in the conversation why I asked Tom on the show in detail, so I won't repeat it here, but it was really interesting debate, and I enjoyed learning via this conversation, so you'll find out about that in just a few minutes. In the real chit-chat across the pond light, as promised, Lori Gill, managing editor at imore.com, is back to talk WWDC with me. Now, before you groan that you're exhausted by so much repetitive stress about how awesome the show was, I'd like to try to convince you that we took a bit of a different angle. In Lori's previous appearance on Chit Chat, she said something that really stuck with me. She said that she loves WWDC because of all the new software that makes everything new again. You don't have to spend any money to have all of your devices feel new. So we started this episode by focusing on who gets to enjoy the new hotness in macOS Big Sur, iOS 14, and watchOS 7. But by who, I mean, like, what devices get to play. And it's a lot of devices get to play with the new toys. Then we spend some time breaking down the differences between Rosetta 2 and Universal, both of which will help our older hardware and our older software get to play in the new operating systems. It's easy to get confused between the technologies, at least for me, and Lori clarifies that for us. Lori also wrote a great article on all of the new accessibility features in the operating systems, so we spent a bunch of time letting her teach us about those tools. She emphasized that most of us can take advantage of these increases in accessibility, so it's definitely fun for everyone. We spent some time talking about how to file a radar, and what is a radar, And then she explained a bunch about the new recovery mode options coming with Apple Silicon. Now, I don't think most of those topics were actually really covered that much in some of the mainstream podcasts. Anyway, I think we managed to make it mostly different information that was covered before we got together, and I enjoyed the heck out of sharing the joy with my new friend, Lori. You can subscribe to Chit Chat Across the Pond Light in your podcatcher of choice, or listen along at podfeed.com and read the links to the great iMore articles. Okay, as promised, we've got a review from Nuclear John, and he asked me to read this little note to you before you listen to his review. This review was written and recorded before WWDC 2020 and the release of the iOS 14 and watchOS 7 developer betas. One of the fancy new features of iOS 14 and watchOS 7 is a new notification on your iPhone when your Apple Watch is fully charged. People are assuming this is because Apple added native sleep tracking in these releases and they knew you would have to charge your watch during the day sometime and you want to be notified when your watch is charged. If you want to learn more about this feature, Mac Rumors has a good overall view of the new additions to the Apple operating systems. Okay, with that preamble done, let's hear Jonathan's review and I think you'll understand why he wanted me to read that to you. Good morning, Allison and No Silly Castaways. This is Jonathan back with another review. 
If you're like me, you wear your Apple Watch to bed for sleep tracking and as an alarm in the morning. This means that the Apple Watch will need to be charged sometime during the day. But I found that I can be forgetful and not remember to grab it when it's done charging. I do have the battery widget on my Today View on the iPhone, so I can pretty easily check when it's fully charged, but I don't always remember to do that. What I really need is a notification to alert me when it's done charging. This is where Juice Watch from Gnotus Holdings Incorporated comes in. Juice Watch is one of those apps that does a few things, but does them very well. In this case, it sends you an alert notification when your Apple Watch or iPhone is done charging. Now, this app has a lot of settings, most of which I don't really use, but they're nice if you need them. It has tons of settings for complications and notifications to customize everything to your liking. The top of the app shows the current battery level of your Apple Watch and iPhone. Below that are settings for complications and then notification settings. The majority of the app is dedicated to the complication settings. And like I said before, they can be customized to exactly what you want. The complication can show the Apple Watch and or the iPhone battery level in various configurations. The complications are in the new style introduced in watchOS 5 that have numbers and gauges. The watch and iPhone battery levels can be either the percentage number or the gauge number. And the gauge can have a percentage label or not. So, like I said, very customizable. There is also an option to show a small lightning bolt on the complication when the watch or iPhone is charging. I don't find this particularly useful since I charge my iPhone at night and the battery lasts pretty much all day. And the way I have it set up is just displaying the Apple Watch battery, so I don't really need notifications or indication that the iPhone is charging. But if you do charge your phone during the day and want to know from your watch whether it's charging or not, it's a nice option. I do also want to note that you really should add the complication to the watch face if you want to use this app. The main reason being, watchOS doesn't let apps update in the background very often unless they have a complication on the active watch face. It's about once per hour, according to the developer. But if you have a complication on the watch face, it's between 5 and 30 minutes, depending on system resources. So it could be the difference between having an accurate battery level reading or not. There are pictures on the show notes that show all of the different combinations. It's a little hard to describe in words, but if you're interested make sure to check out the blog post. The other big section of the app is the notification settings. In this section, there are five settings, four general settings that you can turn on and off as you wish, and the other one that's crazy and I cannot fathom turning it on, but it may work for you. So let's cover the four normal settings first, and we'll get to the crazy one later. Two of these settings are for the charging notifications. That is the notifications when the selected device is charged to a specific battery level. It has separate settings for the Apple Watch and iPhone, and you can independently pick the charge level between 50% and 95% when you want to be notified. This is the functionality that I originally wanted, and it works really well. The other two of the four settings are the opposite of the first ones, that is the low battery level notifications. And like the charge notifications, it has separate settings for the Apple Watch and iPhone, and you can independently pick the battery level between 10% and 40% that you want to be notified. I do know that the Apple Watch and the iPhone have built-in notifications for low battery level, but this is definitely more customizable than the built-in ones. So if those don't work for you for some reason, this is definitely a good alternative. So that takes us through the four normal notification settings. And there was one last crazy notification setting that I mentioned. And this option puts the current battery level of the Apple Watch as the badge number for the Juice Watch app. And maybe this is just me, but I'm one of those crazy people who don't like notifications and turn them off at every opportunity. 
That way, when I get a notification, I know it's important because I've specifically chosen to get it. I only have a handful of apps that are actually allowed to send me notifications, and only three that are currently allowed to have a badge on my home screen. And for those of you wondering, it's Messages, Facebook Messenger for talking to my sisters, and OmniFocus as my task manager of choice. I think Marco Armit said it best in the Overcast settings page. Quote, Show the number of unfinished episodes on Overcast's icon to add stress to your life. Unquote. To be fair to this particular option, it does have a clarification setting that pops up when you select it that limits it to show the badge when the Apple Watch is actively charging and not all the time. Which is a little less nuts, but it's still weird for me. But if you really want to be reminded of the Apple Watch battery level every time you look at your iPhone home screen, the option exists for you. The next section in the app going down is the Guide Tips and Tricks section. The developer included a section for tips, tricks, and frequently asked questions, which is incredibly helpful. I wish more developers would do this to share their thoughts and insights on how they designed the apps and what they were thinking when they made certain choices. I don't want to read all of them here, but I at least do want to list the sections so you have an idea of what's in there, and if one of them piqued your interest, you can just download the app and look. The app won't install, information on update frequency, complications, forcing an update, background app refresh, low power mode, don't force juice watch to quit, why 90%, we'll get into this one a bit more later, multiple Apple watches, and please add AirPods. So if any of those headings interest you, make sure to download the app and go to the guides, tips, and tricks settings to get more information. So everything I've talked about up until this point is completely free. But there are two things that require you buying the $5.99 premium features in-app purchase. The first one is changing the app icon from white to black if for some reason you don't like the normal icon or don't have it hidden in a folder like I do. And the second one is changing the notification sound. This app is incredibly powerful even without the premium features. I'm actually surprised they didn't put more behind the paywall. And for my needs, I don't even need the premium features since I keep their app in a folder so I don't see the icon and I keep my iPhone on vibrate 90% of the time. So changing the notification sound isn't that useful to me either. But I am thinking about buying it anyway, just to support the developer. While I was writing and recording this review, the developer released a new update that changed the premium features a little bit. They added the ability to set the watch charge notification level above 95%. We will get into this a little later in the review, but I did want to mention that the premium features did just change. Now back to your originally scheduled programming. There are a few more things in the app that don't really fit into one of the other sections, so I'll just lump them all here in the miscellaneous section. So the thing right after the notification setting is an ad for one of the developer's other apps. It doesn't seem to be algorithmic or creepy in any way. All the times I've seen it, it's been the same app, P&C, their hydration tracking app. So I think it's just handwritten and hard-coded into the app to give you a link to some of the developer's other apps, which I don't have a problem with, but I did want to mention it for completion. The next section is the tip jar. I've seen a lot of other apps implement this in various ways, and every time I see it, it makes me kind of happy. I like supporting developers who make things that make my life better, and I also know there are people, for whatever reason, don't like subscriptions. A tip jar seems to be a nice compromise of giving the developer more money over time and needing to work really hard to justify adding yet another subscription to people's growing lists. 
I also appreciate that the developers of JuiceWatch put it at the very bottom of the app so it doesn't get in the way of the functionality, yet isn't hard to access for the people who want to send them a few dollars. There are three things left in the app that we haven't discussed, so for completeness, I'll mention them here. There is a Share JuiceWatch button that brings up the share sheet and it just gives a link to the App Store page. There is a Restore Purchase button if for some reason the app doesn't remember your in-app purchase. This normally happens when you reinstall the app or upgrade a phone, so it's nice to have. And the last thing in the app at the very bottom is the version number. I'm not sure why this would be useful to the end user, but it isn't intrusive and it may help the developer with support if they can easily explain how to get the version number someone is running. I've been going on and on about how great this app is, but I do have one complaint, though this complaint is fairly minor. I really want to be notified when my watch gets to 100% charge instead of 95% charge. It may seem silly, but those extra 5% are a psychological barrier for me. I want the watch to be fully charged, not just mostly charged, when I grab it. This is something that the developer talked about in their frequently asked questions section, which I want to quote from here because I think they actually have sound reasoning why they did this, even though it does kind of bug me. Quote, Many people have asked to be notified when the battery reaches 100%, but there are a few reasons why this isn't ideal. One, there is a delay in how often the watch sends its level to the phone, so the watch may only send its level at 85%, and then about 30 minutes later at 95%. As an example, even with the notification level set to 90%, you're getting the notification at a higher level, 95% in this example, due to the delay. And number two, the charging speed can slow down as the battery approaches 100%. This extra wait for the last few percentage points combined with the delay means you could wait a very long time to get the notification at 100%, when above 90% is usually good enough. End quote. If you want to learn more about how batteries charge and why their charging isn't linear, as you would expect, go listen or read Allison's Tesla charging post, linked in the show notes. I mentioned earlier in the review that the developer just released a new update for the app that added the ability to increase the notification level above 95%. Even though this does negate my entire complaint, I wanted to leave it in because I think the original reasoning from the developer was sound and should still be considered. If you're like me and wish there was a way to get a notification when your Apple Watch or iPhone was fully charged, then I can definitely recommend Juice Watch especially at the low, low price of free. Though if you get use out of the app and can afford it, I'm sure the developer would appreciate a few dollars thrown their way. Thank you so much, Jonathan. That is really cool. And I think this is one of those cases of where maybe the app is sort of Sherlocked, except Sherlocked in a good way, where there's so many more features in JuiceWatch than the plain features that you're going to get with iOS 14 and watchOS 7. So I think the review is still relevant. And thank you so much for sending that in. Dumb. 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 Dumb questions. Dumb questions. Dumb questions. What What is? How come I always have to? It's time for Dumb Question Corner. Well, like I promised up front, Ron Hybe wrote in a dumb question in our Slack at podfeet.com slash Slack. He wrote, just listening to the In a Few Minutes episode from February 14th, He's referring to Ken Ray's uh, podcast called In a Few Minutes. Anyway, he said, I heard you mention about using Airtable for tracking the streaming stuff you have in process. I know almost nothing about Airtable, having just looked at their website's main page a bit. 
I'm not understanding what it is about Airtable for this use case that would not be handled equally well as by a Google spreadsheet. What is better about Airtable for tracking that? Well, I put this in the dumb question category because it was the exact same question I had for years and years. I was too embarrassed to ask because everyone else seemed to see this epic difference between a spreadsheet and a database, but I couldn't see it. It actually wasn't until I started using Airtable that I finally grokked the power that a database can give you. Now, don't get me wrong. Databases won't necessarily replace spreadsheets in your life because who doesn't love a good pivot table? But I see each tool as having its own purposes and problems they solve. With a spreadsheet, you have what are essentially flat files. You may have a link from one sheet to another for an equation, for example, but there's no fundamental relationship between them. With a relational database, there are relationships between types of data. Let's use my TV watching database as a set of problems to be solved. My husband Steve and I watch some TV shows together, but we also have shows that we only watch alone. The TV programs we watch are on all different networks, and we can never seem to keep track of which one is on what network. We also have a bad habit of forgetting what we're watching or that we're watching a series, and then we stumble across it much later, having entirely lost track of the plot. Another problem we have is remembering if a series is still actively being produced or whether maybe it's on hiatus or perhaps we've watched the entire series. We wanted a way to slice and dice the data of what we're watching by these different parameters. It would be nice, for example, to be able to see at a glance whether we're still watching anything on a specific network, thereby letting us know if we could cancel our subscription. We were actually getting stressed out by all these problems. And, you know, when TV is stressing you out, you know you're doing it wrong. Well, in Airtable, I started by creating what looks like a spreadsheet using what Airtable calls grid view. Down the left column, we put the show name. Then we added columns for the network on which it's airing, who's watching, whether it's active, and whether we finish watching it. If this was a spreadsheet, we could fill in each column and we'd have a nice chart of all the shows with all the information we needed. But let's start walking through a use case scenario. Steve sits down to watch TV while I'm upstairs obsessively coding for my programming by stealth homework. He wants to watch something that we're not watching together. In order to easily find just his shows in the spreadsheet, he has a couple of options. His first option would be to select the top row, add a filter, and set the who's watching column to Steve. Then he could filter out the shows that are designated as finished. This would work perfectly for him. But when I opened the spreadsheet and all of my data would be missing, I'd have to change the filters to make it look the way I wanted it, thereby messing it up for him. Alternatively, he could start sort by who's watching. My stuff would be at the top alphabetically and his below that. However, when a show was completed, it would still be sitting in that list and the list would get longer and longer. We'd have to copy the row for that program to another sheet called finished. And yes, of course, we'd want, we want to keep tracking what we finished because it would be just like us to start up a program think, thinking we hadn't seen it yet, only to start going, wait, this seems familiar. And what if later we added a column to the spreadsheet, say, for genres, such as sci-fi versus romantic comedy? Each of us could start with the mood we're in for a show. How would that sort get messed up with two people changing the same spreadsheet? Now, Steve could also make a pivot table that showed just the data he wanted to see and not mess up the original spreadsheet. But the last time I checked, pivot tables don't update automatically, so even more confusion would probably ensue. Now, let's see how a relational database can solve this problem elegantly and simply. The main thing that databases have that spreadsheets don't have is the concept of a view. Views are just what it says on the tin. 
They allow you to view the same live data in different ways. You can arrange everything to your heart's content in a specific view and not break any of the other views. At the same time, if you want to change the values while in a view, it affects all values in all the views. In our example, if you mark a program as finished when you're in one view, that program will be showed as fi- shown as finished in all views. In our TV watching example, I was able to create a view called Steve, one called Allison, and one called both. In Steve's view, it only presents the TV shows he's currently watching that are active, and of course, mine presents the active shows I'm watching. But there's even more benefit. Steve loves nothing more than adding more columns to his spreadsheet. I mean, it's like he's crazy, but it just keeps adding all these columns. And I like to keep more to a minimalist, the least number of columns I can have. In the Steve active view, he can include the network, the season number, the episode number, the total number of episodes, and a notes column of where he heard about it. But in my view, I can simply have the network, the column for who's watching, and the notes column. We both have a view with exactly what we care about and nothing more, and yet neither of us is messing up the other's view. We can even sort the columns at will without bothering the other person. There is peace in our land. Another thing that I like about Airtable is that the columns don't just contain words, numbers, or calculations. I chose a simple checkbox for the finished column, so there's no need to type in yes or no. We set up a rule in the views we care about that says to only show programs where the finished checkbox is not selected. Now, to be fair, you can in a Google Sheet add a checkbox and then a filter to choose whether to show the checked or unchecked rows. Now, I've been referring to rows and columns because that's what they're called in a spreadsheet. But in a database, the data and columns are called fields and the rows are called records. Airtable goes way beyond checkboxes for the format of the fields. In addition to single and multi-line text, a field can be an attachment. It can allow multiple selects and single selects. It can identify the collaborator via date, phone number, email, URL number, or currency. Airtable also color codes things very nicely. For example, in our single select field for who's watching, the Steve entries are nice little blue bubbles. And because I like to annoy myself, those programs identified as just for me show Al inside a pink bubble. And the shows of both of us watching have little purple bubbles. You can change that, of course. Since Steve and I were both raised on spreadsheets, we tend to have our views always in the grid format. But if you're a little more adventurous, Airtable includes a gallery view which shows you a little card for each entry. It's playful and sometimes can trigger revelations about your data. This week, I was on our weekly video call with some friends and we got to talking about TV shows uh, that we're watching and networks we like. We got on the topic of Star Trek, as one does, and CBS All Access came up. One of our friends asked, why are you still paying for CBS All Access when Picard and Discovery aren't on right now? I pulled up my trusty air table, put it in gallery view, set the filter to the, on the uh, network to CBS All Access, and to my dismay, I discovered that the only show that was active and we were still watching was Hogan's Heroes. I'm pretty sure I can do without that show for $10 a month. See how useful a database is because of the flexibility of the views? I canceled CBS All Access. Now, another popular view is called Kanban. That's K-A-N-B-A-N. In Airtable, I added a Kanban view and set the field for the view to be who's watching. Instantly, I had, a three, I had three columns of little cards representing the records, one for both, one for Al, and one for Steve. Each of these columns is called a stack, and I can collapse them, and I can even create new stacks. 
I can change the stack sort to other fields, such as network, and all columns instantly resort themselves. By default, the Kanban cards only show the program name and the network in my case, but in the customized cards menu, I was able to turn on as many more fields as I like, and the cards expand to show the newly enabled information. I have another example of how a database can be more useful than a simple flat spreadsheet. When Steve and I go to trade shows, every person we interview gives us a business card. Each night, we go back to the hotel and I transcribe all of the information from the cards into a spreadsheet and add information about the product and any information that will help trigger our memory of why we talk to each person. As Steve works on his video production after we get home, he expands this spreadsheet to, I think it's about 348 columns of information that he needs to track. All right, maybe 348 is a bit of an exaggeration, but it's way more than I want to see. I care about maybe four columns total, and I have to scroll left and right like crazy to get to those columns that I need. I can't reorder the columns or it messes him up, and I can't hide them for the same reason. With an Airtable, I could have the view I want, and he could have the view he wants. Now, this is the same argument I use for why Airtable is the right tool for our TV watching solution, just on a grander scale. But for our trade show data, there was one more thing I love about Airtable that made the business card transcription ever so much easier than using a spreadsheet. With Airtable, you can create a web form to be filled out that automatically populates the database. I created a form that had just the information I needed to transcribe from the business cards and nothing more using the fields we have in our Airtable. I could pop open the link to the web form and very quickly and efficiently enter just that information from the business cards. I could do it on my Mac, my iPhone, or my iPad. As I added each business card, it populated the full Airtable database and none of Steve's precious fields were moved or modified in any way, and I didn't have to look at them. If you've got a database you want populated by other people, you can create this kind of web form and have anyone fill it in without giving them access to the database itself. They're just adding new information. Having this form change the transcription task at trade shows from a slog and a chore to just slightly annoying. But more importantly, it allowed me to do the task much more quickly than working with a spreadsheet. Now, I sent this long, drawn-out explanation I've just given you to Ron, and I asked him to verify that it made sense, and his response was really funny. Turns out, he knows what a database is, and he knows why they're cool. He just didn't realize at first glance that Airtable was a database. But then Ron took things up a notch and just kind of took on the challenge, and he very creatively constructed a Google Sheet that successfully replicated much of what I use Airtable for with watching TV. You can view his spreadsheet in all its glory at a link in the show notes. Now, I still think Airtable is much better for this task, but it turns out you can use a hammer to turn a screw if you try hard enough. Christopher Ryan has figured out something really cool. If you're already a patron of the PodFeed podcast, did you know that you can increase your pledge? Yes, it's true. He figured it out. Christopher actually doubled his pledge to help support the shows through Patreon. This meant a lot to me because it shows that he's continuing to get value from the shows and is willing to recognize that value with his hard-earned money. Now, I know everyone can't afford to do this, and I really, truly don't want anybody to feel guilty if they can't. But it doesn't take a lot of you to, to make a pledge to help defray the costs of the show. I think Christopher is a gentleman of astoundingly good taste to have done this. If you'd like to help support the show by becoming a Patreon or increasing your pledge, just go to podfeet.com slash Patreon and choose an amount that works for you. 
Two weeks ago, the internet lost its collective mind because Apple rejected an app in the iOS App Store. Now, as happens, I found myself trying to reason with the angry mob with points I never hear anyone else make, but I was just kind of talking into the air. I really wanted to have a reasoned conversation on some of these points with someone who wasn't enraged like everybody else, but could perhaps be a foil to my arguments. The least enraged and most logical and informed person I know for this task is Tom Merritt of the Daily Tech News Show. So I asked him to come on to hash this out with me. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you. I will try not to be enraged. <laughs> yes, be pathologically uh, unbiased, right? <laughs> uh, not, I'm not really, uh, but I do try to make sure that I'm, I'm looking at as many angles as I can on stuff. Okay, good. Well, uh, let me set this up a little bit. There's a lot of nuances to what irritate pe irritates people about the iOS App Store, but the thing I want to jump right into is the bit where I seem to be alone in thinking Apple is is not doing something awful. Because so the loudest people are constantly saying that Apple should not take a 30% cut on sales of apps. And, you know, those same loud people never seem to mention that a while ago, Apple changed it to 15% after the first year if it's a subscription. So I've heard people, they, they keep saying Apple could take half of that percentage and still make it a profit. And I don't think there's any way that that can actually be a known fact because Apple doesn't publish the profit on the App Store. But even if they could, why would 15% be the right answer? I mean, why why should it not be... 30%. And, and I think this bothers me because people never take, take into account what it costs to invent things. They say, okay, what does it cost to run these servers and have the people who do the approvals? Can't be that much. But Apple spent a lot of time and money developing the entire concept of an app store. I mean, it, it didn't exist for phones before Apple created it. They invented this concept. And inventing things means a lot of ideas were worked on and dropped. So it's not the one invention that costs money. It's all the things you try to invent, and then only one thing comes out. So, Tom, why should people be giving it away for free or lower their price? Why does everybody <laughs> think that except for me? Uh, well, uh, I think uh, I, I'm not sure which straw man uh, I should attack first. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've been yelling this for a long time by myself. Yeah, I don't think you're the only one making that argument. I've, I've seen that argument a lot. Uh, and I don't think everyone is saying uh, Apple should not take a 30 percent cut. And I do think that this is the weakest argument about Apple's App Store policies. Of course, they should take a cut. And in fact, 30% is the standard. Google Play also takes a 30% cut. Oh, they do? Uh, yeah. Oh. So that that's not the problem here. Uh, the, the problem is in what your options are and uh, can, can you do things uh, within the App Store rules that other people can do if your product is slightly different. But the 30% cut, I mean, sure, you could argue like, could it be smaller? Yeah, it, it could be. But it's pretty standard. As far as putting an app up in the app store and selling it goes, uh, 30% cut is, is pretty standard around. There are other revenue splits here and there. Uh, there, there are other revenue splits say on YouTube or places like that. Uh, but really the 30% cut, I don't think is, is that controversial until you get into ongoing subscriptions. That's where I think people start to get rubbed the wrong way because saying, okay, if you're going to sell your app in our app store, we want to take 30% of the price is doing exactly what you say, saying, uh, you're providing me space in this app store. I'm going to give you a cut of it. Subscriptions get muddy. Subscriptions make the argument a little weird because you're giving away the app for free, making money on the subscription. 
So there's no way for Apple to get a cut unless they take a cut of subscriptions. But at some point, you're paying for all of the operation. You're paying for maintaining subscriptions, maintaining your service. All Apple's doing is the same thing it does for apps that live in the App Store, host the app. Those apps only have to pay 30% that one time. You have to keep paying 30% for a long time. And I think that's what starts to mess with people's head. That said, uh, I don't think Apple taking a cut, even at 15% after the first year, is wrong. You can argue numbers all day long. What I think we'll get to in this conversation is if you don't have the opportunity to have an effect, to negotiate, to make a choice people start to be rubbed the wrong way. And and we'll get to that later on of like, well, don't you have a choice? Yes, you do. But what those choices are can make people feel like they don't have a choice, even though they do. So let me ask you one thing about, um, you said that uh, with a subscription, you're doing all of the work, but if you can use Apple's payment method for the subscription, I'm paying for CBS All Access. In fact, I found sure. out I was paying for it twice. I was paying for the the commercial free version and the regular version, but Apple actually gave me my money back when I noticed it, so that was good. But so oh, yeah, that that is being and this handled gets into by the choice them, thing, right? right? Sure, if you want to have Apple manage that customer relationship and that payment system, then of course it makes sense for them to take a cut. But that's when the comparison starts to suffer because if I use PayPal to take my subscriptions, they don't take fifteen percent. I certainly don't take 30% for the first year. Mm -hmm. uh, if I'm using Patreon for my subscriptions, which I am, they don't take 15% or 30%. Uh, that That is not a standard rate for subscriptions. But beyond that, can I choose not to use Apple's payment system? Well, so it's it's a lot more than... So Patreon, you're not getting the kind of service that you're getting from Apple. That's like saying, I don't pay my garbage collector. I mean, it's not, it's not an equivalent service at all. It is and it isn't. Uh, I mean, it's the, a website. Patreon gives me a whole stuff. lot of things that I don't get from Apple as far as customer relationship management. True. Uh, you don't get a CRM from Apple Pay. Uh, right. But yeah, also, you don't get uh, some of the other uh, advantages to to Apple Pay. Although, honestly, I'm not even sure as far as subscriptions go, what those are. Well, oh, I didn't mean comparing it to Apple Pay. I'm saying comparing it to the App Store. But again, we're talking about the subscription part, not the hosting my app part. Well, so you want the part, one part and not to pay for it. And they're, and they're two they're, different products. And of course you should pay for both of them, <laughs> but they're both priced the same. And I think that's mm -hmm. what starts to rub people the wrong way is like, wait a minute, a subscription service that you're providing doesn't even give me a CRM. And I have to pay 30% on an ongoing basis. And Apple said, fine, after the first year, we'll drop it to 15. But a lot of people are like, that's still a lot of money I'm giving over. Now, again, at the beginning of this, I said, this is your weakest argument because Apple can just say, hey, guess what? We're worth it. Uh, you, you don't like it, go somewhere else. So one of the things I, I wanted to get into was uh, somebody was, well, this, this I don't think I can do it without introducing the next topic, but let, let me take- Maybe that's a good transition. Well, <laughs> yeah. well, let me take a, the Walmart example, and I won't do the example I wrote up for the show notes, but if, that's, to me, that's like saying, okay, I've got- um, I've got something I'm going to sell in Walmart, but I don't want my customers to go through the cash register. I want them to pay through this, you know, Stripe thing that I'm standing outside the door and I'm going to take their payment. It doesn't make any sense. You're in uh, the app that, store that or you're not. That analogy breaks down really fast because Walmart also doesn't let you 
just go in and sell stuff in Walmart. They buy the stuff from you and then oh, manage it and sell. Yeah. They actually buy right? it? Like you're, I, I, I imagine there's some exceptions. There might be some job racks in there. But for the most part, what Walmart does is they buy inventory, they put it in a warehouse, and they sell it in their stores. Mm. So it's, I mean, I can't just walk into Walmart and say, hey, I want to sell this. And Walmart go, great, uh, let us take 30% of the cut, put it on the shelf. If it sells, uh, we'll give you the 70%. Well, like, yeah, deals are negotiated. Exactly the okay. same way. Uh, but to, to the point I think you were trying to get out there is uh, Apple's just saying, hey, man, this is our store. Uh, you, you t- this is how much we're going to charge. Uh, whether it's fair or not, I don't know. It's what we're charging, and you decide whether you want to pay it or not. And I think that's fair. Okay. All right. Well, the the thing that started this kerfuffle two weeks ago was a mail app called Hey, and the developer put it in the App Store and then did an update. And when they did the update, that's when they got they got tossed out. And the the thing they did was they made it free, but it was completely non functional. At zero dollars, you had to go get a subscription, which they did outside of the store, not inside of the store. So Apple wouldn't get its cut. And so they basically were delivering an app to customers that had no functionality. And the Internet lost its mind when people when Apple stopped uh, threw them out of the store or, you know, just rejected the app. Is that a good description of it? Well, uh, I, yes, with a couple of of clarifications that people might have misunderstood. They didn't have a functional app that then they submitted an update for that made it non-functional and Apple rejected that. That would have been perfectly, was, I don't think anybody would have been It upset. was always non-functional. Uh, when you say it's non-functional, it was non-functional from the beginning. Okay. And when you say it was non-functional, it was non-functional unless you had a subscription already. Right. If you had a subscription, which you had to go outside to get... Uh, then it would have been functional. So the app wasn't broken. I don't want people to think that. Yeah, the right, app just right. didn't work unless you had a subscription and you you couldn't get a subscription in the app because Apple doesn't allow you to have a subscription in an app unless you use Apple Pay. Right. Or not Apple or, Pay. Well, Apple's, Apple's payment, payment system. system. Yeah. Right, right. So they were trying to circumvent exactly what they knew the rules were that they that they couldn't do that and a lot of people have said uh there there was something about it being a reader type app and they were using people were using the analogy of saying it's like the Kindle app but you can get the Kindle app and put stuff on the Kindle app that costs you nothing it's not a dysfunctional app when or a non-functioning app i mean you have to have an amazon account but I mean, you can put stuff on it that it didn't cost you anything. You can get uh, from within Frank- the Kindle app. You can put stuff on it without um, having an Amazon account. So you can put uh, you can you put PDFs on app, it. You let's can pretend put- there's a person that still exists that doesn't have an Amazon account. <laughs> <laughs> you download the Kindle app. You don't have an Amazon account. You can still use the app. It's functional. Yeah, because you can send PDFs to it. EPUB books that you download, open source books. If you have an Amazon account, you can send PDFs to. Right. If you don't have an Amazon account, though, can Hmm. you do anything with that Kindle app? That's a good question. Probably not. If you download the Netflix app, you don't have have a Netflix account, can you do anything with it? No, but back to to Amazon, you don't have to be paying anything. You don't have to give them a dime, was was why I was picking on the Kindle app. You have to have an account. Yeah. And can you sign up for that account through the Kindle app? No, I don't think so. So it's non-functional when you download it. Unless you go outside of the app store and sign up for an Amazon account. Hmm. 
Maybe. Yeah. And Netflix is a perfect analog for Hey, the email app, because when you download it, if you're not paying Netflix, it doesn't do anything. It, so it does absolutely nothing. I mean, the first screen is login. There's no uh, advertisements of stuff you could watch. There's no trailers or anything like that. I don't that. know that the Hey app didn't have advertisements of, you know, what it did. It just wasn't allowed to say, go sign up. Right, right. Uh, and I'm not sure that Netflix doesn't have any free stuff before you make an account either, but they would be allowed to do that. So the people I were listening to were all yelling loudly about the money. Uh, but it sounds like a bigger piece is really being annoyed at Apple for being inconsistent in their application yeah. of the rules. Or the money thing, I think, is the weakest argument because, like you say, it's it's a service. Both the subscription a lot, and though. the App Store are a service. You can argue about how much they're charging, but that's separate from this hay issue. Okay. Uh, they, you, you can say, like, I think they should charge less. I mean, sure, I think everybody should charge less because <laughs> they don't have to pay as much, right? Like, that argument is about what is the service worth? and do I have a choice to go and just use another service if I don't like it, right? And that's that's a different argument. This argument, I think, is a little more valid because Hay was saying, look, folks, I can download all the Microsoft apps in the world and they don't do anything if I don't have Office 365 or they don't do all the things. I can download Netflix. I can download Kindle. There are no end of examples of apps that you download that don't do anything. Uh. What what Apple said, what their defense was, is yes, we do allow reader apps if they can access a pre-existing library. In other words, you could have a library of stuff in there if you have an account uh, that you're accessing. With Hey, you're not accessing a library. You're not accessing media. Uh, you're an email client. Now, I guess you could argue that you have a library of email, but uh, that's that's not really what it's about. It's about a, a service, an email service, and we don't allow those. We don't allow those to be broken. I I feel like that's drawing a very convenient line in a way, <laughs> especially when you consider that Apple makes an exception for enterprise apps. If a company says, "Hey, we have uh, well, all of hey. our stuff." On a on a company email app uh, made by a third party. It wasn't made by us. It's not an internal app. Uh, it doesn't do anything if you download it. Apple very reasonably says like, oh, yeah, of course. We're, we want Apple to be, de you know, iPhones to be deployed in the enterprise. We will let you put that app. Hey, wasn't offering an enterprise service at the time. So they didn't qualify for that very clearly. It's like, okay. well, you're not. You're a consumer service. Later, hey, signed up some workplaces and that helped them qualify under Apple's like, great. Now you have workplaces you're in. Uh, oh. but at the time of the problem, they didn't, uh, and they weren't considered a reader app because they didn't have a library of stuff, a library of movies or TV shows or, or generally content. Or books or, or books or whatever, okay. any, any kind of content. It was, it was a, it was a utility, mm -hmm. right? And they're like, you can't have a utility that you download that doesn't do anything. Hayes response partly, not only, partly was, but we could. We could tell people to sign up directly with us. You won't let us. You make us use your payment service. You say, if you're not using our payment service, you can't even put in your app a reference 
to the fact that there would be a way to use this app. So but that makes you perfect are, sense to you me. You are making the rules up coming and going. This is Hayes. Hayes sure. Argument. You're making the rules up coming and going of saying, yeah, you can't have an app that doesn't do anything, but also you can't tell people how to make it do the thing. But to me, that makes perfect sense because why should they let you go? Why should they let you put a link in that says, click here to go not pay Apple? I mean, that I wouldn't put that in my in my my functionality. Google allows it. Yeah, Google's also not making any money on the App Store. I mean, they're they're revenue. Well, I, I mean, they're making that's money, true, but but they're but certainly not making as much money as Apple's making. Correct. And, and per capita, they're not making hardly anything. I mean, the numbers are very very small when you divide it by the number of devices. Out are you there. talking about developers or Google? Um, I'm talking about uh, paid for uh, the percentage of paid for apps versus uh versus the number of of uh devices that they're on when you when oh, you see, I, I see. the yeah. revenue that comes from the I think app Google's store making a tidy sum of it developers don't seem to be making as much but okay they're, I mean, they're making money we're but quib- the we're quibbling over beans right uh, but it's beans and a lot you're, more you're beans. saying the principle is the thing you're and and you're saying well google's dumb that's why they're <laughs> you know they <laughs> well they google has other revenue streams right this is what? this is one of this and selling the devices is what Apple has. My Pixel just uh, gave me a, a search for land use developers. After I said that. <laughs> Interestingly, that's good. That's good. I'm sorry, you, you were saying. <laughs> saying um, Google has other revenues, or uh, you know, as a, a wide variety too. Right, which I said was the the devices that they sell, um, and and other ser- subscription services. Yeah. The, music, TV, iCloud. Actually, they do have a lot now. They, yeah, they have plenty. But it, one of the things I've always found fascinating is that it, people using the word should, like when you said, I think they should charge less because then I could have more stuff or pay less for the stuff I get. But they're never looking at the context of they're a business. They're in it to make money. Apple is setting its rules. And if you don't like the rules, then you can vote with your feet. And if you vote for with your feet, they will feel the pressure and say, huh, well, we're not making as much money anymore because people don't like this. Uh, and and so we should change our behavior to make more money. I, yes, I, I think that's true. I, I wonder, though, whether this is only something that pundits are arguing and yelling about, you know. The 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 ninety nine point seven percent of the people who aren't developers are just going, hey, look, I can buy stuff. It's not just the pundits; it's also the creators, and this is where you have a very interesting power imbalance that actually reminds me of another power imbalance on Facebook. Uh, the power imbalance in the Apple App Store is an interesting one. It's the power is in the hands of the small creators that don't make as much money. Small creators are happy to give 30% over. They're happy to give 15% over. And the reason that is, is they get so much more exposure by having an app on the app store that it's absolutely worth every penny of that 15 to 30% they're giving over Mm -hmm. because they wouldn't get the uptake elsewhere. And so they'd have to the, build their whole own system to do they'd it. Have to build their own system. So the vast majority of the creators are like, you know what? It's fine. I don't mind. It's when you get bigger and you're starting to run up against a whole different scale of costs, a whole mm-hmm. different scale of operation, a whole different scale of margins. And 
we like to try to reduce things to like, well, they're just trying to maximize value for shareholders. But honestly, sometimes it's running an operation our large, our, our, as large as ours has costs that most people can't imagine. And I know you know some of these costs because you worked in a very large organization. Uh, and so sometimes that 15% to 30%, you're like, well, wait a minute, what are we paying for here? Because we're not making the total amount that we would want to make on this. And we could do our own payment system. We could do our own distribution. We're not getting the benefit that all these smaller creators get from having Apple doing this because we could do it all ourselves. And we don't even get like Netflix decided the exposure benefit isn't even good enough. We're going to we're going to take that reader app out because everybody knows about Netflix. We don't need to use that. Uh, and I think because Hey was made by Basecamp, they felt the same way. They're like, we're not really getting 15 to 30% worth of benefit out of this, but there's no choice. It's one size fits all. Everybody pays the same amount. So that's that's interesting because one of the things that I, I have an argument with that really bothers me is in, inconsistent application of the rules based on how big you are. So I sure. know that there are deals, you know, like if we could talk about the the ISPs for the phones where they say, okay, well, we're going to let YouTube be, you know, that's what, not going to count uh, against your data cap. Let's talk about video creators with Apple if you want a deal that's made based on size. Okay, I don't know what that means, but let me finish my thought first. Sure. So, so I'm, uh, uh, I, it bothers me when I see a big company get special treatment such that the little companies could never become the big companies because they're not getting that special treatment. So that inequity in, in the way companies are treated or rules are created, like they made a deal, this can happen, that bothers me more uh, than almost all these other things we've talked about. Well, two things. One is, you wouldn't have to change the deal for the small creators to make it better for the big creators in this case, if you wanted to change it. I'm not saying you have to, but if you wanted to satisfy Basecamp, you wouldn't have to make the art, the deal worse because the small creators are like, yep, happy 1530. Great. I can make a, I can, I can make a mint off that at my scale with my low expenses. Uh, I not a problem worth every penny. Uh, and you're not changing that. If you say to Basecamp, Sure, your app can exist in the store. You're not you're not undermining anything. It's it's a very small change. So I'm not sure that in this particular case, the argument of well, if you change the rules for Basecamp, it affects other people, is so saying, as compelling. So what right? you're saying is, if they had allowed it to sit there non-functional unless someone knew to go get the the uh, subscription. Right, because Basecamp's argument is going to be like plenty of people knew about. Hey, we had all kinds of press. Huh, uh, I Basecamp, never heard of it. Everybody uses Basecamp, uh, so we were telling all our Basecamp people. People were excited about. Hey, uh, we were going to get like not worried about that. People will make it functional. They'll know how to figure it out because they know how to do Netflix. They know how to do Kindle. They know about this dance you make people do mm -hmm. to get these reader apps to work. I don't know why you're drawing us on the other side of the line. That that's that's Basecamp's argument there. Don't you think this and was allowing, the best thing that happened to them though? What's that? <laughs> don't you think this was the best thing that happened to them? Everybody knows what Hey is now. Yes and no. I mean, it certainly isn't bad for awareness, mm -hmm. uh, and it might have spiked uh, some of, some of their subscriptions. But I, I also think that that's that's a fun argument to make if you want to score points on Basecamp. Uh, it's not really meaningful because it's not like, oh, no one would have known about, hey, uh, there, I was seeing articles about it and I was, I was seeing people excited about it before 
the update got rejected. Huh. So I, I never heard did of Did they it. benefit from it? Sure. Did they need to benefit from it? No. Okay. Okay. I see what you're saying. Right. That I'm still intrigued. So you don't think that... Oh, the other, the other thing oh. I was going to say is Apple has a separate set of rules for big-time video creators. Uh, if you're an Amazon... Uh, or Netflix, even though they don't take advantage of it, HBO Max, et cetera, you can get an exemption uh, from uh, these rules uh, for your TV apps. If you say, yes, I will integrate with your TV app, Apple, I will let you uh, see my my user data uh, and I will show up uh, in the TV app uh, and be tracked there uh, and included in, in that, then Apple will allow you to have non-Apple pay or non-Apple payments purchasing in your app. How do we know that? that Someone had to have Apple announced it. it. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. Okay. Because oh, they, they said uh, when they allowed Prime Video to now include purchase buttons, uh, they said, this is not Amazon using our system, but we are allowing this for companies that participate uh, in integration in the TV app. Okay, so that bothers me more. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why I said, if you want an example of that uh, thing that bothers you, Apple's doing it. I don't think that changes the argument that we're having at all, but it is interesting to note that you don't even have to look outside Apple to see an example of that now. Yeah, yeah. So w let's talk a little bit about the, you can go somewhere else to do it. Right, I mean, right, because so it all hinges on that. I feel like these are in, in ascending order of of compellingness, right? The they're they're charging too much. It's like, eh, okay, maybe they are. Uh, the you know, but the other apps do it. It's like, well, yes, that is compelling. It does seem a little unfair that you draw the line right here mm -hmm. uh, and say, well, these apps can be non functional, but these can't. Uh, but I think Allison, you've done a good job of saying, well, they are different. Uh, so, so maybe, maybe not, but the last one I think is the one that really gets people convinced if they're going to be convinced at all, that something might need to be changed. And so why is it an invalid, um, or a false equivalency if maybe to say, well, you can just go to Android. It isn't, uh, it's, it's a perfectly legitimate choice. I think a lot of people, uh, realize that. Saying you can go to Android is a little like saying you don't uh, you, you 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 got laid off from a job and someone says, "Well, just go get another job." And you're like, "Well, there aren't any jobs in this city. Like, well, just move somewhere else." Like, hmm, yeah, you can, but mm -hmm. it's hard. Uh, and that's true of Android and iOS both. Once you're in the system, it's not easy to switch to switch. Right. Uh, and and app makers know that too. Uh, they're like, well, shoot, yes, we could go put our app in Android, but our, you know, I'm not saying this is true of Hey or Basecamp, but it could be true that someone's like, but our users are on iOS, like 78% of our users are on iOS. And you could hit a situation where suddenly there isn't much choice uh, because you won't be able to get your users to go to Android. It's not as easy as going across the street from Walmart. There's There's a lot more pressures. And that becomes a question of, are we dealing with a monopolistic situation? Are we dealing with a situation that abuses its market dominance to gain something? Which there's different ways to judge what the abuse of a market dominance is, but generally antitrust is not 
that you have 100%. You can have 100% of the market and not abuse your market dominance. It's possible. You could have 20% uh, of a market and abuse that market dominance if that 20% dwarfs all the other competitors and never lets them grow. Uh, it's, so those are unusual cases, but it's always about whether you're abusing your dominance or not. Right, right. Uh, you can be a monopoly, but not have monopolistic behaviors is what you're saying. Yeah, I guess that's a way to put it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I'd have to think about that, but yeah, it's, it's, I say abuse your market dominance because that's usually how the courts talk about it. It's, it's I, like, I do oh, have... it's not that you're a monopoly. It's that you abuse that market position because so you I, don't have to be a monopoly to abuse your market position right. and get into antitrust hot water. I'm I'm intrigued about that because um I actually have firsthand experience with uh with this. I was asked to testify under oath by the Federal Trade Commission, which was terrifying. And the lawyer explained to me that monopolistic behavior was problematic when you acquired the monopoly businesses. And it might have maybe this was specific to the thing that I was dealing with. Um, but they said that if these if this company that was uh, being accused of monopolistic behaviors, if they had cr created everything that they were uh, for raising prices on, that would have been okay. But they didn't. They bought a bunch of companies and then up the prices like eighty percent. But they said it was specifically because they acquired it that it was a problem. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know enough about the case and I don't know enough about antitrust law to say for sure. I could imagine there's a situation where if you invented it, you're under patent. Right. And you can you can monopolize because you've got a patent and no one else can make the thing that you made. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, under a uh, under patent protection. That's the whole point of patent protection is right, nobody right. else gets to make it. But I could see a case where there are 15 companies under patent protection that all make the same thing and a company went and bought all of them. That's and what now, it was, you know, and now yeah. nobody, nobody can make those similar things, even though they were different enough for different patents. Uh, I, I could see where that would be, be the case. Yeah, that was exactly, but it's what still it was. abusing your dominance, right? Right. That's they, abusing your dominance. But they were saying it wouldn't have been abuse if they invented it. And when you look at something like what Apple's done, they invented it. I mean, at the, at the beginning of time, Google sort of copied the whole idea, right? I, I get the sense that uh, if 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 someone who knew more than both of us looked at this, uh, <laughs> they would find that your FTC situation didn't apply to Apple. Yeah, and it, and it's also from like twenty years ago, <laughs> so it could be. It, yeah, I mean, the, and there would be arguments about whether they actually invented app stores and payment processing and all of that. I mean, it really gets thorny at, at that point. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's the best argument. I, I was also very careful to say app stores on phones. Because <laughs> I know there were there's app there stores was no on app other store things. on the Palm Trio. I remember one. You can go download stuff. Hmm. I'm trying to remember how we used to I do mean, that. Prior Art's a bitch. <laughs> I'm sorry to say it, but Prior Art is 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 a is a, a tricky business. You can almost always find Prior Art. It's always a question of whether you convince the judge that the prior art is in fact prior art. Yeah. If we were talking about that patent law. Yeah. Well, I don't know if well, you're, you're talking about inventions and that's what, that's what right, defines right. whether something's an invention. Yeah. But I'm talking about in the monopoly uh, conversation. I don't know whether we'd care or not, but, uh, well, I don't know whether you've convinced me, but it it sort of takes the wind out of my sails that you don't think the money argument was uh, the profit <laughs> percentage was a big deal because that's all I hear people yelling about. I mean, well, I listen to podcasts. Quiet down. Uh, that's <laughs> <laughs> oh, you hush. <laughs> I mean, well, it's 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 not you. That's not an argument 
that you are going to learn much from. Uh, and the, that's why I go back to what I said earlier is, I mean, if you want to score points, if you want to argue to win, then yeah, you could, you can come up with all kinds of rhetorical devices that, that make it awful that, that Apple keeps all that money. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if, if you want to argue to learn, it's like, well, the 30% is standard. Uh, the 15% is probably good for a lot of people who can't run things. What what bugs me is the end user experience. Oh, the yeah. The user yeah. experience at the end is not good. Uh, if I download something, I should be able to know where to subscribe to it, all the ways to subscribe to it. Uh, and this isn't about like, you know, circumventing Apple's payment system. This is to say, look, uh, I want an app marketplace where the people making the apps can give me the best deal. And if using the Apple payment system gives me the best deal, I want them to use the Apple payment system. If using their own system, because they're a big enough company to run their own payment system, gives me the best deal, then I want that. I don't want to have to pay more for a subscription because Apple made them use their payment system uh, when it would have been a better deal for me and the app creator to use their payment system. And that's that's not good for me as the consumer. I, I want I guess to I have as much choice as possible. I it's not about, about right that as the wrong. deal, though. It's about what's what's best for me. And what's best for me is that the app maker can create a value proposition that gives me the most for my money. I was with you right up to the deal for you. Um, I think the biggest harm here is the user experience, that you get something like the Kindle app, and every time you go in to buy a book, you're like, ah, oh, that's right, yeah. I gotta go blah, right. blah, blah, and then pretty soon you watch but TV Apple's, instead. But Apple's response is like, that's Amazon's fault. Right, and, I, and I'm sort of on their side on that. <laughs> well, <laughs> still, if you had to pay 15 to 30% more for each book, would you think that's a good user experience? So that would assume that they would defray no costs by having it be done, having Apple do it instead of doing it themselves. There would be no cost defrayment. That 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 would be, it's a hundred percent increase in cost. Yeah, and you think it would be? No, well, well, what I'm saying is they already have a system for selling you books. They've built it. They paid for it. They run it. Uh, it probably cost them something to run it, certainly, but would it cost them less to run it if they run it through Apple for some users? Probably not, because now mm. they have a, a separate Additional. development and support yeah. track. And now they have to also, on top of supporting and developing it, give 15% or 30%, depending, to the App Store. So it's going to raise the cost. Yeah, th that is interesting, but not as annoying as the annoying process to me, uh, because I don't see that the the cost of electronic books is logical at all anyway. When I go in and I look and I say, okay, wait a minute, I can get a, a, a softbound book that has to be stored on a shelf and packaged and put in a box and mailed to me for less than I can get an electronic book sometimes. I don't think those prices reflect the real right. cost anyway. And, and that's actually the, 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 the truth of the matter is price reflects demand, not mm -hmm. just cost. Right, uh, and right. I, I, I constantly argue with people about, you know, like, yeah, but it doesn't cost them that much. I'm like, doesn't matter if people will pay. You, you don't <laughs> see people say, well, 
I, it cost me five dollars uh, to make this, and so I will sell it for six. And if it costs me four, I will sell it for five. They say it cost me five dollars to make this. How can much I, can what, I get? How much can I get people to pay? Right, uh, right. Ten, twenty, even better. Right, right, right. And so that that argument also works in your favor there because then it would be like, well, maybe uh, selling at exactly the same price to the Apple people uh, will end up being fine because that's what they'll pay and you'll sell more books that way and make up the extra cost. And what Amazon has decided, and I'm sure that Amazon has some really smart people looking at this is no, we wouldn't, we would, we would lose, we would not make more money by using Apple's payment system. Uh, and so we will not include that. And, and to me, it's like, that's just a, that's just a bad system. Like I, I know it's Apple's market and they can do the payments the way they want to. And I know there's a justification to say, Hey, we're the ones running this, this service. Uh, why wouldn't, you know, why wouldn't you let us, uh, run it this way? I think there's other solutions to this. There, you know, there's you know, other I, solutions could be for, for Apple to just admit like at a certain scale, uh, making people go to Safari is just a bad user experience. But what, Apple has, which is again, a company with a lot of really smart people is like, yeah, but that doesn't, that doesn't affect our bottom line. Making people go to Safari to buy Kindle, uh, doesn't stop people from buying iPhones. So why would we be motivated to make that particular part of the user experience better? The, these are not decisions that are made out of some kind of moral or aesthetic, uh, predilection. They're, they're, they're just competing business priorities that don't match up. And you know, we it, it, you know what it is, Tom? It's exactly what you just said. Uh, I'm going to make this thing for five bucks. How much can I get for it? 10, yeah. 15? Apple's going, I made this thing. How much do you think we can get for yeah. it? 30%? Maybe 15? No, 30. I bet we could get 30. It, that's exactly the there's same a thing. Little, right? uh, there's a little bit of intransigence from Apple, though, in not, in not having a better answer. I would like to hear a better answer of why I have to go to Safari to buy my Kindle books than, uh, well, it's Amazon's fault because I totally get why Amazon doesn't want to give over and doesn't make sense to give over that percentage to Apple because they don't get the benefit from it. Uh, I, I wonder if it would make sense for Apple to have a separate system that says, if you operate at this level, uh, of, of content, we'll give you a bulk discount. Like, but yeah, then that that's the one I don't like because the the self publishers so still have like to pay. So you like when you buy more at the grocery store and pay a little less per ounce? You think that's unfair to people who make less money than you? That's the same. That's the same product, though. It's not a yeah. different product. Well, why is this a different product? The product here is an app with a subscription in it, a subscription service. And Apple's saying, if you are going to process a million in-app payments, we will lower the percentage. Hmm. If you are, I, if you're I, processing up to a million, it's 30% and 15%. At a million, it's 20% and 5%. At a billion, it's, you know, why couldn't they do that? I guess that gets back to the the question of, I've got a little video service that I want to sell video and right. I'm not at the Netflix level. And so I don't, uh, I'm unable to compete with them because they're getting a better deal. 
Are, but I guess but, I guess that's true in everything, right? That's just say, capitalism. That's true right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, it's not like we're seeing a no bunch fear. of video services going, aha, Netflix isn't using Apple's in-app subscription service. I now will win against Netflix. Well, like you're you're seeing them pay the same amount. So well, I'm not sure it would fundamentally change the the playing field there. Now you would have thought that if the the Kindle experience was so bad for all of us that Apple Books would have taken off. <laughs> okay, that's another that's another part of this that we didn't we didn't talk about uh, is Competing there is also a monopolistic argument uh, against Apple because they have competing apps. Right, right, so, right, right. So they have a music app. They have an email app, and Basecamp could say, "Well, they want people to use their email app." Now it's a little bit silly because Apple didn't charge you for the email well, app, right? And Hey could just support IMAP. But they don't. And I, I honestly, that was the the uh, the response from Apple that made the most sense to me. It was like, "Hey, just add Pop Three. We don't care. Uh, add three. IMAP. Uh, <laughs> it's fine. Like whatever. Like just do that, and we'll." Which which sort of undermined this idea that Apple needs them to pay for the App Store. You know, this idea yeah. that oh, Apple right. has to charge you because they need to pay to run the App Store is a little bit undermined by the fact that Apple's like. Look, man, we'll let you list things for free. We don't make you charge for apps. We will let you put Pop and IMAP in your in your app, and we will not have a problem with this. Apple's not doing this because they really need to make the money off of it. They really are doing it because they feel they have to have a line on it. Yeah, and they drew the line. And they don't want to get their eraser out and move they the line. Yeah, and they well, here's the other thing is they only drew half the line. It's a, it's a it's a horrible analogy, but they said these things are on the other side of the line, but they didn't define other things. They just sort of left oh. it. And I think Basecamp honestly thought, well, we're a reader app. We right. you're reading your email from us, and and there's so many enterprise versions of this. Like, why would we be different? And and it really was kind of reading the rules very closely of Apple. And this is, again, what this is why the original app got accepted because some Apple reviewer looked at it and like, yeah, that's a reader app. I mean, it's kind uh, of similar to the enterprise apps too. So let's let's let it through. And then a later reviewer was like, I don't know. I'm a stickler. And I don't think this meets the letter of our law. So we're not going to allow the app update. I do give Apple a huge amount of credit for saying going forward, security updates will not be subject to, to review policy. Only point updates because they they left a buggy hay app in their app store and that's not good for anybody right right the um the last thing i did want to point out is after all of this kerfuffle um apple has announced that they will have a an approval dispute appeal process Uh right so 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 that that process of you know guy who had a bad day and is real a stickler uh, versus guy who was like, yeah, seems fine to me. Uh, you, you at least have some recourse. And I think that's very good. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess that's good because probably all the egg on everybody's collective faces could have been eliminated. Maybe if that they had been an appeals process, maybe there at least would have been a chance for base camp to go, whoa, 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 what happened? Uh, and I think right. that, that's a situation that a lot of developers complain about. I hear that from all kinds of developers that they get these rejections or these notes about their apps and it's 
so vague that they're not quite sure what they did. And that every mm-hmm. time they submit, they just sort of cross their fingers and go, <laughs> I hope I got the friendly guy today. Uh, because they, it's really uh, difficult to find out. I think even better than the appeals process would have been some way for, for you to have a conversation with someone about what was wrong with your app. Probably, you know, at the scale that Apple works, uh, not not real feasible. But that that's what developers want is like, if I get rejected, I want to know why. Well, maybe if they have enough money, they should be allowed to have the appeals process, Tom. <laughs> if, well, yes. Uh, <laughs> not at, the little at, developers. At a certain number of complaints, you will get a bulk discount <laughs> on your uh, on your appeals, right? Uh, that's actually what happens already is, is if you're a big developer, you can get somebody at Apple on the phone. Yeah. Uh, if you're yeah. a small developer, you can't. Got no chance. Right. Well, as big and small podcasters here, we're going to have to draw this to a close. Before you go, though, um, I know people do know you for the Daily Tech News Show, but um, you've got a really cool new show that I'm super excited about. I want you to tell, tell people about it. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's a show where I just explain a topic uh, every week. So the first week was 5G. Uh, last week was ARM. This week is Safe Harbor. Uh, and it's, you know, it ranges. Uh, sometimes they're as little as six or seven minutes. Sometimes they'll be closer to 20. Uh, but they're, they're short enough that you can digest uh, the things you need to know about a topic without getting too deep. So I, I try to balance the person who knows about a topic will go, yep, yep, that all sounds right, and maybe learn a thing or two. Uh, and people who are brand new to a topic will not feel lost, and they'll not feel like they needed to have known a lot of stuff. So that's called Know a Little More at knowalittlemore.com. I really liked the 5G one because, I mean, I pay a fair amount of attention, mostly to you, but uh, I couldn't believe how much I didn't know about it and didn't know... When you listen to this episode, you'll know why you care and why you don't care and how soon you should care. Yeah. What to care about. What to care about. Right, right, right. What I was was trying for. I don't want to do any spoilers here. All right. Knowalittlemore.com. And you can find Tom on Twitter at Ace Tech. Yeah. Just search for Tom Merritt. Don't even. Yeah. My (laughs) username is ridiculous. All right, Tom. Thanks for coming on and hashing this out with me. Thanks, Allison. All right, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeed.com. Now, you can't believe how many people write to me or write to me through a different medium and go, oh, what's your email address? I say it literally every show. So I know I can say anything I want right now because nobody obviously listens to the end of these shows. But anyway, you can email me at allison at podfeed.com. Those dumb questions, love me a dumb question, you know that. You can follow me on Twitter at PodFeed. And remember, everything good starts with PodFeed.com. You want to double your Patreon pledge like uh, Christopher did? That's PodFeed.com slash Patreon. You want to do a one-time donation or maybe quarterly? PodFeed.com slash PayPal. You want to join the conversation? The best place for that is on our Slack at PodFeed.com slash Slack, where Ron posted his dumb question. Or you can find us over on Facebook at PodFeed.com slash Facebook. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.